From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As Colorado tries to keep its head above another COVID-19 wave, remember, it's not just whether there's a bed open for you at the hospital. It's having a nurse that's trained. It's having a respiratory therapist available to take care of the patient at the level of need. And it's having a physician capable of taking care of the patient at the level they need. Then, the Affordable Care Act undergoes another test at the Supreme Court. We'll hear from a cancer patient in Colorado who's watching closely. Plus, he was a kid when his music career took off. Denver's Zach Heckendorf is maturing, and his latest album is Hawk Talk. Up, 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 if you need up, 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 my friend. I started to see Hawks as this reassuring symbol. You know, you're on your right path, Zach. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President-elect Joe Biden gave a victory speech over the weekend, and health care was a major focus. The immediate threat of the pandemic and the quest to get everyone insured. Americans have called upon us to marshal the forces of decency, the forces of fairness, to marshal the forces of science, and the forces of hope in the great battles of our time. The battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care. We're going to dedicate the first part of our show to those issues, COVID-19 and health coverage. Let's start with the virus, which is forcing Colorado to hunker down again. Denver and Adams counties have set curfews. So has the city of Pueblo. Meanwhile, ICUs are filling up, although fortunately, those who go into the hospital are more likely to be released than earlier in the pandemic. Let's check back in with critical care pulmonologist Dr. Ken Lin Q of National Jewish Health and St. Joseph Hospital in Denver. Doctor, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with this news from the drug maker Pfizer, which claims a vaccine it's testing is 90% effective. I want to caution that's in a sample of less than 100 people. The efficacy could drop, according to NPR, with the full trial. But are you encouraged by this news? It is definitely encouraging, Ryan. It's a glimmer in a sea of darkness. Wow. (laughs) Uh, I think that's exactly how I felt when I saw the headline myself this morning. Based on what you're seeing at the hospital, is Colorado's spike in cases evident to you? Absolutely, Ryan. We've seen significant increases in our hospitalizations. We, We see it throughout all levels at a hospital, ICU, intermediate care levels, and at the floor level. Can you describe the type of patient you're seeing? Is it a pretty broad cross-section? Yeah, so for the most part, it is a continuation of what we saw when we had our initial spike, which is, you know, the 
people are coming in with primarily um, respiratory complaints. And what is the demographic of the patient, would you say? The demographic, I think it continues to match what we're seeing nationally, which is, you know, that the, you know, we see some older patients and those are kind of an across the board cut. But when it gets into kind of our our younger patients are, you know, 50 to 70. And yes, in medicine, those are the younger patients in the ICU, you know, that we're seeing in the hospital. Mm. Um, those, you know, they tend to have more, more of the um, other diseases that are associated with this, so diabetes, hypertension, obesity. And then on the floors, we do see some younger patients. They don't, they don't filter up to us in the ICU as the rate as the other people. But we definitely have more younger people in the hospital in general. Um, but the people who are getting the sickest still tend to be the the elderly, the not elderly, but have comorbidities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand that National Jewish and its partner, St. Joe's, have had to say no to transfer patients from elsewhere in the West so that you can focus on people who get sick locally. Is that... Yeah. hard as a physician to know that that choice had to be made? It is. You know, we we view ourselves as helping people. And when whenever we have to say we're full and we can't bring in people and they're looking for help, you know, it's very hard to say, you know, I don't have the resources to offer you, especially knowing that a lot of these places are calling us because where they usually send people are also full. You know, we've been lucky enough that, um, sorry, let me just close this door, make sure that uh, no problem. We can hear our those. alert system at the hospital is not coming <laughs> through the phone. Um, so um, as I was starting to say, I'm sorry, we're um, fortunate enough that, you know, like we've had little lulls where we've been able to open back up and say, all right, maybe we can take a person here. But, you know, but for the most part, over the past week, we've been pretty full and not able to offer that service. And, you know, we want to help. You know, Dr. Linkyo, I think so often we talk about the availability of beds in a hospital. You know, is there enough room for you at the hospital? That really is only part of the picture, isn't it? Because it's not just a question of beds. It's a question of is there the staffing, the, the pretty specialized staffing that could take care of you if you wind up in the hospital with COVID-19. Help us understand that. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Ryan. So we, when we talk about a hospital bed, you know, a lot of people have this idealized version of the doctors and a doctor and a nurse standing next to the bed with them. It turns out that a hospital bed is so much more than that. It's the, the right doctor at the bed. So, for example, I'm an ICU doctor. You don't want me delivering a baby Um, would be a good example. You need to have the right nurse that knows how to take care of people at that level of care. Our ICU nurses have a different skill set than our OBGYN nurses that would help deliver that same baby. Um, You need respiratory therapists to help provide the pulmonary therapies, particularly with a disease like COVID. And sometimes you need other specialized care that you need to have those RTs, radiology techs, et cetera, available to provide it. So all those come together to make your bed that's available and able to treat patients. And in New York, for example, during their their spike, 
it wasn't that they couldn't find a physical bed to put people in. It's they were running out of nurses and RTs, and that's why they had such a big call for help to come out there. Which makes me want to check in on your state of mind, how you're doing. I mean, this has been months now of of a battle. How are you holding up? And and what is your internal dialogue? Sounds like sound like these days, Doctor Lin Q. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And you know, every day I come to work with a little bit of stress. I'm a little. I think it's more of an anxiety. Is probably a better way to put it. Where it's, am I going to be admitting five or six or seven patients with COVID intubated on a ventilator today? Is today the day we're going to spill over to elsewhere? Is today the day that it's going to explode and, you know, we're going to be in a down, you know, a, go from a downward trajectory to a downward plummet? So every day I walk to work and I kind of have that little, that little pit in my stomach, you mm-hmm. know, so... Fortunately, when you look at the things like, you know, that outside, you know, where, you know, you start worrying about other things like, you know, is it affecting me at home? No, am I able to go home and, you know, be normal at home? Am I able to do other things and be normal? Yeah. So, you know, it's not the type of, you know, crisis situation where it's like time to, you know, go, you know, go talk to people. And I think a lot of our healthcare workers have gotten to that point where it starts to affect them outside of the hospital. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things we always have to be acutely aware of. And but it's when I walk into work, I have that feeling. The bright spot, if you can call it that, is that deaths are not rising at anywhere near the same rate as hospitalizations. Um, in just about the last minute, what, what's going right and I think what's going right is we have a um, a younger population that's coming in, so they, they're more resilient. So I think that's more luck than right, to be honest. Mm. Um, we have a better idea of when we need to utilize a ventilator. We have a little bit better supply of drugs to help take care of these patients when they do need to go on a ventilator. We know that most of our standards of care are the right standards of care to apply to this disease. So even though we don't have any magical cures for COVID, I think just good reassurance that we're doing the right, you know, of how to take care of these patients has helped and not being in that overwhelmed yet state helps because we can provide all those things at the right time for the patient. Mm, The population... Uh, The density absolutely informs the question of what kind of care you can deliver. Thank you so much, doctor, for being with us. You're welcome. That's critical care pulmonologist Dr. Ken Lin Q of National Jewish Health and St. Joe Hospital in Denver. Still to come, a checkup on the ACA in Colorado as the marquee health law once again heads to the Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court takes up the Affordable Care Act again this week. It could overturn the ACA, let it stand, or eliminate a key provision, the individual mandate, which requires Americans to have health insurance or pay a tax penalty. Laura Packard of Denver is among those closely watching this unfold. She was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, just over three years ago. Stage 4 means it was all over my body. And I don't know if I would have lasted the year without treatment. 
She's been in remission since 2018. Packard is self-employed and insured through the exchange, the Obamacare marketplace. I had junk insurance before then, and if I still had junk insurance, today I would probably be bankrupt or dead. I looked back through my uh, bills from the insurance company in 2017, and it was somewhere between half a million and a million dollars. So I, I didn't have that kind of money. Thankfully, insurance covered those costs. Packard says the ACA is not perfect. There are plenty of things that should be fixed, including high deductibles and so on. And, you know, there are people that make a little bit too much to get help, and yet they really aren't able to afford uh, if something happened. But it was far better for me, at least, to pay thousands of dollars a year than the several hundred thousand dollars it took to save my life. She says she has always considered herself an activist, and now she's fighting to keep the ACA intact. She hopes the Supreme Court agrees that the law is necessary. I'm scared. I mean, they won't have a verdict until next spring, likely. But if they had a verdict with immediate effect, next spring would insurance companies cancel policies on the spot? And the millions of Coloradans on Medicaid expansion, uh, Colorado doesn't have the extra money lying around, especially during this economic crisis, to pay for that. So if Medicaid expansion, the help from the government goes away, uh, that's so many people that are going to lose their health insurance. Many of them uh, picked up on Medicaid because of losing their jobs in this pandemic. And then to be thrown off their health insurance, too, it's it's just It's so terrible. Laura Packard of Denver, cancer survivor and now activist to preserve the Affordable Care Act. So how has the ACA changed the health care landscape in Colorado, good and bad? Michelle Leake is CEO of the Colorado Health Institute, which does nonpartisan analysis. Michelle, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So between Medicaid expansion and the exchange, which offers subsidies, how many Coloradans have health insurance under Obamacare who otherwise wouldn't? What are the numbers? Yeah, the numbers are pretty significant. um, And I'll go into those and um, address that. But at a broader level, Ryan, I think it's important to think about all the people who have benefited in the state of Colorado. And so uh, when you think about the impact, it's well beyond the numbers. If you've had a pre-existing condition, which is about a third of the population, hmm. you've benefited from better coverage. If you're, you have a kid under 26 who's still on your plan, if you've had routine uh, annual exams, those are all been provided um, at a, a, a essentially at no cost to you. In terms of the numbers themselves, uh, we estimate that just about half a million people have benefited from seeking insurance of, of getting coverage, uh, either thanks to Medicaid expansion or uh, through the health insurance exchange. And are those folks who without Obamacare would be without insurance or what? Well, chances are they would be without insurance. Uh, What we saw before the Affordable Care Act, nearly 10 or just over 10 years ago, we had really high rates of uninsurance, right? And so in 2011, we we had 16, 17% of all Coloradans did not have any health insurance whatsoever. 
through the implementation and uh, in, uh, taking advantage of all the, the all the different opportunities that the Affordable Care Act has afforded to the state of Colorado, we've whittled that down to six and a half percent uninsured. So that represents a really significant amount of people in the in the in the in the state and our population. Now, there was that sort of famous line from President Obama at the time. Something to the effect of, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Anecdotally, we know that wasn't always true. And that was a major complaint among Republicans, especially. What was the general picture about being able to keep your doctor in Colorado? Can you speak to that? Yeah. Yeah, I could speak to that a little bit. You know, it was probably more uh, rhetoric than it was the reality of the situation, right? And so the exchange, for example, represents this really um, dynamic public partner um, partnership. And so when you go on to the exchange, you can pick the plan, you can look to see if your physician or your clinician of choice is in that plan. So I think there was probably more um, hype around that um, than than the reality really um, um, afforded. Hype around not being able to keep your doctor? I'm trying to understand very specifically what you're saying. Yeah. So I, I think in most cases, people have enough choice in their plans that they were able to pick a plan where their clinician was a part of it, right? And so... But there was the rhetoric around um, or the the sort of concern that there there would be lack of choice in the system hasn't really bared out to the degree that that some critics thought that it would. Now, speaking of choice, it is especially narrow, <laughs> limited in rural Colorado, which has some of the country's highest premiums. I'm thinking of the, yeah. the resort communities, especially. There's not a lot of competition in those places. Help us understand the, if you will, the, the weakness of Obamacare in some of those communities. Right. So I think that there are, there are three weaknesses that we as a state in Colorado, particularly in the last you know, five, six years, have really tried to address. And they fall into the, the areas of competition, concentration, and cost. Okay. And those are particularly acute in the rural areas. So when you don't have choice of insurance plans and you don't have choice of hospitals, that tends to be correlated with higher health insurance premiums. And that's what we're trying to um, address at the state level through a variety of legislative means. Right. I mean, there was talk of a public option, for instance, in Colorado that would afford more choice in some of these communities. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, the public option, um, that's still a, a stated goal of the Polis administration, but there are other things that have actually uh, been realized, including the reinsurance pool and some uh, very innovative um, sort of initiatives like the Peak Health Alliance up in Summit County, where, there's, where we're um, trying to accelerate the relationship between um, accelerate the relationship between uh, directly between employers and providers. Could you just give us the Cliff Notes version of what the Supreme Court will hear and what the potential outcomes could be for consumers? I mean, we heard earlier from that cancer survivor who has a fair amount of fear right now. 
Yeah, and I I really enjoyed Laura's uh, take on all of this, and I think that um, I, her story is really compelling and illustrates what's at stake with the Supreme Court ruling. And it's important, Ryan, to know that she's not alone. There is many, many people in here in Colorado and nationally who who fall into that category. Um, you know, the the argument is one that um, is uh, highly legalistic, and and it takes a, like a real brainiac to sort of follow through all the different ar arguments of the Supreme Court. And there's all sorts of, um, you know, sort of big decisions along the way. And so, um, you know, we have to first of all figure out if the the cases the case before the Supreme Court has standing. Then they have to address whether or not the individual mandate is unconstitutional or constitutional. And if it's found to be unconstitutional, is it severable, which is like, can you take it out of the ACA and leave the rest of the, the legislative um, act in, in um, whole? It's and, a bit like a Jenga, um, a Jenga puzzle. You know, can you pull out one bit of the Jenga and, and can the structure stand? Exactly. Exactly. So it's a it's a very complex um, sort of formalistic argument, but the but the you know I go back to my opening comments is that it's uh, there's so many people in the state of Colorado and nationally who have been impacted uh, in one way or another by the uh, the Affordable Care Act that the stakes I think are high for everyone. In just about a minute, how has Obamacare affected state finances? Yeah, so I think that in general, the, the Affordable Care Act has been, I would qualify it as a good deal for Colorado. And what I mean by this is that we were able to expand coverage at very little cost to the state. So when we expanded Medicaid, for example, the costs that were covered by the, the those costs were covered by the federal government. Over time, over the last five years, we've paid a little bit more, but still the federal government pays 90% of for that expansion population in Medicaid. And I point again to the health insurance exchange, uh, where again, we are really relying on uh, private partners to um, provide plans on the exchange. And so this has come at very little cost to the state itself. Well, thank you so much for this rundown of the ACA in Colorado as it goes once again. I think this is the third time to the Supreme Court. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Michelle Leak is CEO of the Colorado Health Institute, where it's apparently a busy day. We should note that it is currently open enrollment on the exchange, Connect for Health. CEO Kevin Patterson says it's full steam ahead despite the legal uncertainty. The healthcare law does remain fully in effect, and our focus has been and continues to will be to get as many people covered so that's something they don't have to be concerned about. I think, you know, we've seen Supreme Court cases in our history a few times. These things don't unveil themselves very easily, quickly, and there's so many different variables along with the SCOTUS case that I think it a little too early to be panicked about it. You know, we're watching, we're concerned, but we're also very focused on making sure we get people the right information to get them signed up so they can have that coverage. And we'll deal with what happens when it happens. And so open enrollment continues. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with an Aurora teacher who grew up watching Jeopardy. 
then got to be quizzed by Alex Trebek. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News. You'll find all the stories behind the results of this year's election in Colorado at CPR.org. And this week on CPR News Politics Podcast Purplish, we're going deep on what we think it all means. I'm Caitlin Kim. Join me and my colleagues, Benta Berklin and Andrew Kenny, for a positively purposeful parsing of the vote that was. Look for Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now let's remember Jeopardy host Alex Trebek with a Colorado man who appeared on the game show 10 times. Trebek died Sunday at age 80. He'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Music teacher Kyle Jones of Aurora won more than $150,000 on the show in 2018 and in a tournament of champions the next year. Kyle, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, of course. It's my pleasure. What went through your mind when you learned that Alex Trebek had died? I was more affected by it than I had anticipated that I would be. Not because it's not tragic, of course, but, you know, we, we've had this diagnosis of pancreatic cancer since he shared it with us in March of 2019. Um, so it's been over a year and a half. And as we know, pancreatic cancer does not have a particularly high survival rate. And I think all of us in the Jeopardy community had had a sense that, you know, he could be gone at any any moment, but he had made it so long since then. I, I think uh, what I'm seeing from myself and, and from a lot of my Jeopardy friends is that we we had almost let ourselves forget, you know, that, that he was dealing with this because he'd been mm. surviving so long and had you know, put on such a strong face the whole time. Um, Not that he was hiding anything from us, of course, he was very open about it, but it did come as a bit of a shock. Yeah. What do you remember about the first time you met him? As a contestant, you don't actually get to meet Alex until you are on the stage. They take it very seriously, the, um, the separation of anyone who is in charge of producing the game and anyone who has seen the questions before, mm. uh, so that they keep them away from the contestants until game time. And so my first interaction with Alex Trebek was that first time that he came up to uh, you know do the interview portion of the show on my first episode. Um, the trademark, of course, was that he either asked you a question or he knew a little piece of trivia that would prompt <laughs> you to tell a story. Yeah, um, they ask you to give some things about yourself and they put it on a card. And then they always warn you, the contestant coordinators warn us that Alex might read what's on the card. We can highlight stuff all we want, but he might go rogue and just ask you anything. So be ready. (laughs) If he feels like talking about something, he'll ask you about it. It's his show. So um, he did ask me about something on my card and, you know, I got to talk about being a composer and, and whatever. And that, that was really nice. And I, what I found for myself and, and a lot of other people that I've talked to about it is even though the interview portion is extremely intimidating beforehand, because as a good friend of mine says, that's the one part of the show that you can't really prepare for. Mm. <laughs> um, like the other, the other parts, you can practice trivia and everything, but whatever Alex is going to ask you, you're just there. That part actually put us at ease because we got to meet Alex. You know, we got to have a conversation with him and he just very calming, very welcoming, very positive. You know, when I was a kid watching Jeopardy with my folks, 
I was really intimidated by him because I just assumed he knew everything <laughs> that was on the show. Yes. Um, during tapings, when the taping goes to commercial break, the contestants who are on stage, they have to stand in their spot and uh, just stay there. They're not allowed to go anywhere. They'll bring you a little bit of water, but you're not allowed to move or leave or interact with anybody. Uh, but he will go and he'll talk to the studio audience and he'll take questions. And and one question that comes up, and you know, I, I've been there a total of four different taping days, and it seems to come up every day. Somebody asks, how much of this stuff do you actually know? Or are, <laughs> you know, what are you reading off of the cards or off of the, the game board? And I don't, I have no idea if this is true or not, but his answer was that he tends to know about 60% of the stuff. 60%. Would that make him a winner of that show? That depends on the uh, buzzer speed, which let me tell you, that's, that's a huge, huge factor. It's not enough that you know the answer, right? I I firmly believe the only reason I was able to win any games at all is because I had a faster thumb. (laughs) You know, I I think pretty much anything that I got right, anyone else on that stage could have also gotten right if they'd gotten in first. You grew up watching Jeopardy or what? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. My my mom in particular has been a fan since for as long as it's been on. (laughs) Uh, She's watched it her whole life. So it, it was a regular part of our evenings. In whose eyes did you get cooler afterwards? Parents, family, kids, you know, the, the kids you teach? And, and... Uh, <laughs> cooler is not usually a term I use for myself, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. Um, I think some of the students I teach, a, a handful of them, it kind of raised me in their esteem a little bit. Most of the students are, they know what Jeopardy is kind of, but, you know, don't, they don't watch it. So it wasn't really super meaningful to them. Definitely in people, you know, of of my generation and and my parents, of course. I think the generation that really watched more network TV. How does the money change your life? I'm just so curious. I mean, I know it's taxed and stuff, but like... Well, yeah, that... it, it was. But um, I, the, the way that I like put it succinctly is it was life-changing, but it was not lifestyle-changing. Huh. Uh, it, it made it so that we could essentially pay off a mountain of debt and make it so that we could think of a viable future for ourselves. I mean, I suppose to some extent that too is Alex Trebek's legacy. I mean, I, the money wasn't out of his pocket, but I mean, the the show changed a lot of lives that way too. Oh yeah. I, I think it's very rare that someone goes on to Jeopardy who doesn't need the money, you know, or couldn't use it for a very good reason. Thank you so much for talking to us. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Oh, of course. Of course. It was my pleasure. That is Kyle Jones, composer and music teacher at Aurora Central High School. The former Jeopardy contestant helped us remember longtime Alex, longtime host, that is, Alex Trebek, who died Sunday at age 80. There's a new work of art dedicated to Denver's first Hispanic mayor, Federico Peña. Luminous Wind is a spiky, glowing orb at 61st and Peña Boulevard, the main artery to DIA. It's set on a tripod of stainless steel columns, and each rod is illuminated by an individually programmable, color-changing LED node. And the light is designed to a wind sensor 
that triggers an increase or decrease in the light movement. So creating a barometer that visualizes and broadcasts wind patterns. Alex Renteria there, airport spokeswoman. She says the two-story sculpture responds not just to wind, but to sunlight as well. It will also glow different colors on some holidays. So it's a symbol of an ever-changing world. It's supposed to reflect also the plains, um, the grasses on the plains when the wind hits. P-L-A-I-N-S, planes, although planes will no doubt fly above. I asked Renteria what she feels when she stands near the piece. I think you would feel inspired if you saw it because on the legs are quotes by former mayor Federico Peña. They're bilingual, so they connect with the fact that he was the first Hispanic mayor in the city of Denver, Um, that he was a huge role within the city, and then also with the whole, you know, United States of America. So he's a big deal. Um, And he's also the namesake for the boulevard, for Peña Boulevard. So it's exciting to be able to dedicate something to him. Peña also served as Secretary of Transportation and Energy Secretary. The artists come from Seattle, Laura Haddad and Thomas Drugan. They weren't available to chat because they were busy installing another work of art. When images of their sculpture hit social media, there were a few comparisons to a giant dandelion and a lot of comments that it looks like the novel coronavirus. I had to laugh out loud when I was reading the responses on Twitter because you guys know the Twitterverse is a really funny place. And we read the comments this morning and we were like, how could we have not seen that? And it's because that's not what it is. It is not in reference to coronavirus. These artists were selected in May of 2017. And truly, if you do look at it with a more art critical eye, you won't see the coronavirus. There's multiple colors. It's not this gray orb with only red little dots poking out. You know, it's multiple colors. Renteria says Peña is pleased with the sculpture. They've delayed a dedication ceremony till later next year because of COVID-19. I tweeted pictures of the piece at CPR Warner. The Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver has launched a new show called Citizenship. One installation gets people, sometimes strangers, to ask 36 questions that lead to closeness. CPR's Maggie Donahue tried it for herself. I'm new to Denver, and during a pandemic, it's not easy to make friends. So when I found Lexi Zadis, I suggested something to her that might have made others run. It's called Including Other in the Self, and it was created by the Colorado artist Laura Schill. We walked into the MCA, and I asked Lexi how she felt at the start of the activation. Going into this? I don't know why. I'm kind of nervous. I feel like I'm sweating. (laughs) My palms are all clammy. I don't know. (laughs) We headed into the installation, a large, echoey room with nothing in it but two chairs mirroring each other, 16 feet apart. And behind each of them, a large metal parabolic disc, positioned upright and mirroring the other one. The discs create an acoustic effect where two people can sit at a safe distance, wearing masks, and hopefully hear each other better, even at a whisper. I'm gonna go. Cool. (laughs) Can you hear me? Yeah, this is crazy. I can hear you so well. It's like you're right next to me. (laughs) 
Do you feel as though your ears are vibrating? I feel like there's a sensation in my ears where I guess that's just the feeling of you being next to me, but realistically you aren't. The activation asks participants to try the 36 questions for increasing closeness. The New York Times published a story about the questions back in 2015, about how they supposedly can make people fall in love, but that's not exactly their original intent. They were developed by psychologist Arthur Aaron in the 1990s to generate feelings of closeness between strangers. Lexi and I began to read the questions off of a list provided by the MCA. The questions increased in intensity as we moved through them, ranging from, would you like to be famous? In what way? To, of all of the people in your family, whose death would you find most disturbing and why? By the end of the 36 questions, we felt like we really knew each other. I, I remember when we first started, I said I felt nervous and I was kind of sweaty, but like, it was a breeze, really. <laughs> Not nervous at all. I felt good. I felt like I learned even more about you than I already knew, which is, that was fun. Laura Schill designed the exhibit as a way to facilitate civil discourse. She felt that social ties between different people have become more and more eroded, in large part because of technology and political polarization. You know, I had a moment a few years ago where I realized I was really sort of trapped in my own echo chamber um, within my own network. She says that when the COVID-19 pandemic began, her work took on new resonance. I think about our moment now when we we were already so divided and anxious, and then we've undergone the, these like months and months of isolation. And so I wanted to bring this project into conversation with civic health and sort of try to offer a treatment for loneliness. I'm Maggie Donahue, CPR News. And you can try those 36 questions for yourself as part of the show Citizenship, a Practice of Society at the MCA Denver. He was only 16 years old when he released his first album. Since then, Denver native Zach Heckendorf has grown his fan base while navigating the maze of the music industry. He took a short break from writing pop music to study creative writing, and Heckendorf has moved back to Colorado to tour virtually from his Denver apartment. His latest album is Hawk Talk. It comes in waves. See you in the distance. I need to change. There's no need for resistance. I'm telling you everything is temporary. So let them take you away. Well, it comes in waves. Zach Heckendorf joined us from his apartment. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You wrote your first song at age 10, right after, I think, your first guitar lesson. Yes, yeah. that, that is correct. Do you remember that first song you wrote? Yeah, we were studying the Great Depression in fourth grade. I remember writing it about inhabiting the, you know, the life and story of this little boy in the Great Depression. Would you maybe recall a few lyrics for us? You know, I, I do not remember. Okay. I, I, I'll have to search my, my parents' house for that. You know, many musicians start off learning other people's music. I, ju- I wonder if yes. that, that interested you less than just making your own. It was, a, it was a pretty healthy mix of both. I think at the beginning, I was really, really into 
riffs from Blink-182 and kind of a lot of those pop punk bands. And so I would be studying what they were doing, trying to copy their voices and also funneling that into my own songwriting. It's funny you mention Blink-182. I was such a huge fan of theirs. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I loved the juxtaposition that they had of like kind of hard-edged rock sometimes, but with like really thoughtful lyrics. Did that appeal to you? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I also have a, a theory that Blink-182 is the most influential band of my generation, probably our generation. I think they're, they're just really influential to pop songwriting. Um, you don't do something that they do. They had a really yeah. af- affected singing pattern. It was like, rah, rah, ram, yeah. rah, rah. <laughs> it was all, yeah. What, what was that? What were they doing? And you don't do that really. Well, that's the thing is that when I was learning to write songs, I'd be copying Blink-182. I'd be like trying to get that, that vocal tone. Yeah. The, I miss know. you. I miss you. I miss you. <laughs> Don't waste your time on me. were my first singing heroes so i was emulating them uh-huh. and emulating their voices and emulating their songwriting and really the the riff they, they write around guitar riffs which i took with me and then eventually you have to say now i'm my own man what was that yes. process like because i like i remember when i started out in broadcasting i was really just pretending to be people like i was pretending mm-hmm. to be peter jennings and and tom brokaw and then at some point i went you know i should probably be ryan so, like, how, yeah. did, how did you come to terms with what it meant to sound like Zach Heckendorf? I think when I realized that I was going beyond just copying my heroes and something unique was forming. And luckily for me, that happened pretty early in my journey. I, I must have been 15, wow, 15, 16, when I was like, huh, this is new. This isn't Jose Gonzalez. This isn't Jack Johnson. This isn't Blink-182. This is Zach Heckendorf. Got one on the ground, one in the grave, one in the sky, and one on the way. Find a wound and crawl up in so I can pop out and be born again. My mind's on the prize, my heart's in the way. I think I have a tendency to throw it all away, but I don't really give up, cause I'm a hypocrite. But I get ended up the fit, but I don't want none of it. Did you have any fears of becoming like the musical equivalent of a child star? Like someone who peaked too soon and struggled? Oh yeah, I mean, I think that was more my fear once I had some level of success and once I got into the business, because I got in the business when I was 16, the managers and labels and all that stuff started coming to me uh, at that age. And so that was more of a worry and fear I had in my early 20s, like, was that it? Was that the extent of my career? I got over that. But yeah, there was a period of worry about that. I wonder if taking your music making and frankly, distribution and all of that into your own hands, because you had relationships with record companies, and then I think you decided to kind of go indie, Kickstarter, crowdfunding, all that. I wonder if that gave you a power, a self-determination, for sure. And I think that has been 
what I've been learning for the past 10 years. You know, I'm, I'm 27. I've had a 10-year career, which is crazy to say. <laughs> and but but that's what I've been learning. I mean, it's it's all been about how do I take this more into my own hands. That's what I've been learning to do. I mean, doesn't that mean learning to be a, a business person, which you know sometimes doesn't go hand in hand with artistry, being an artist? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, I feel like the main tension in my career has always been art and commerce. You know, <laughs> yeah, figuring out how those two relate and how to make that a healthy relationship because. It's important. It's important to know your business and it's important to know your art and figuring out how those two come together can be tricky. And I'm finally getting to a place where I feel like there's a healthy balance there. All I want to do is get free. Sit back, relax and just be me. Dipping and diving about infinity. And here is the thing. The game has barely started. Denver singer-songwriter Zach Heckendorf is my guest. His latest album is Hawk Talk. I understand that the title for this album, inspired by your time living in Los Angeles, where, where do hawks come in? I worked a couple different jobs in L.A. I had a landscaping company with my friend Elliot, another musician. We worked in Laurel Canyon. Oh, yeah. Very, quite and famous. It's a famous place to work. Yes, yeah. You can feel that artistic energy there. But... uh I was seeing hawks a lot. I didn't think much of it. I was just like, oh, oh, seeing lots of those birds. And at some point, there was was a couple instances where I saw hawks. It was such a weird timing and in such a weird part of town that you wouldn't expect to see hawks. I started to see hawks as this reassuring symbol, as like, you know, you're on your right path, Zach, sort of as this protective symbol. And once I started saying that, I started realizing that a lot of people have some symbol in their life that is just this reassuring sign. And so it's that the hawks were talking to you, hawk talk? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's some form of communication in the symbol of a hawk. You know, the word auspicious, you know that word? Yeah. Yeah, when things are auspicious, they feel fated. That actually comes from birds. It's the combination of avi and speck, so to see birds. So you were oh, having... wow. You were having an auspicious moment in Los Angeles. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yes. Drop a little trivia on Zach Heckendorf. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the creative writing that you did at Columbia. Are we, are we going to see a novel? I think what I realized in my creative writing program is I am much better built for writing songs than, than, uh, <laughs> than fiction. No, I, I learned so much, but I struggled my way through the fiction writing. I think songs you can get away with more in songs which i like i think when you're writing a short story or a novel you can't leave any holes the reader will sense it you have to really know what's going on i think in songwriting there's a little bit more room to not know and let the listener fill in the holes on this record what's a turn of phrase that you're really proud of a lyric i think lyrically my my favorite song on the album is called the empty song I was in New York, I was writing about the empty feeling that we all feel sometimes. And uh, the song starts 
in that depressive place. And it, by the end of the song, emptiness is referring to the emptiness of a monk's mind. So I guess what's a, what's a line in there that I really like? I saw empty eyes on MTA, which is the, uh, the subway. Yeah. Underground, I heard them play songs of freedom, songs of love, but everybody's ears were plugged. It's the idea of being in the subway and there's a performer just like pouring out their soul, pouring out their heart, and everyone just has their little earbuds in. Can't hear it. I saw empty eyes on MTA Underground I heard them play Songs of freedom and songs of love But everybody's ears were plugged As they walked into empty cars Zach, the pandemic has taken a toll on musicians globally. You've managed to stay busy with some gigs, including this virtual tour, I think from the apartment where you're joining us now. Yep, yep, yep. here and in New York. I can see your kitchen cabinets behind you. Yep. And some unpacked boxes. How does totally. it feel to tour virtually? And explain you know, the setup. Like, how do you bring energy to, you know, what, what what's fundamentally like a Zoom meeting? I think the main thing I've learned is like, you have to be doubly as energetic in order to just come off as normal energetic. Oh, interesting. So, so if I just show up and I'm kind of like in my normal, calm performance state, that doesn't translate very well. I have to like really put on the makeup uh, in a metaphorical sense. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. The new album from Denver's Zach Heckendorf is Hawk Talk. <coughs> My baby ain't the normal time now She wrote the code that we now write A black beauty in a sea of white She floats like a hovercraft Well, my baby ain't the normal time now She wrote the code that we now write And her loving never locks me in That's why I'm a lover back She give me that real love it's that real love So what to do it just take it all in Take it all in How auspicious that you could join us I'm Ryan Warner This is Colorado Matters from CPR News Scared what to do it just take it all in